Welcome to the Coaching in Clubland podcast. My name is Mitch Johnston and I'll be your host. Coaching in Clubland is an Aussie podcast designed for current and aspiring coaches from all levels and across a range of sports to share their experiences about the caper. We discuss the roller coaster that is the coaching experience, the highs, the lows, the joys and the pitfalls. I caught the coaching bug as a teenager and have been fortunate enough to hold various coaching roles within cricket and footy clubs over the last 15 years. Through these experiences and my interactions as a player, I've come across many great and some not so great coaches in Clubland. We'll aim to keep things simple, practical and relatable so that you can apply these insights to your own coaching experiences. Sit back, grab a cuppa and please enjoy the episode. In this episode of Coaching Clubland, we speak to Mick McGuan. As a creative and hard-running midfielder, Mick played 152 games for Collingwood from 1987 to 1996 before adding a further three games with Carlton in 1997. He booted 129 career goals, including a magnificent seven-bounce effort to win him Goal of the Year in 1994. A 1990 Premiership player, dual Copeland Trophy winner and All-Australian in 1992, there can be no doubt he mixed playing credentials. Equally as impressive is his career in coaching. Immediate success with Burnie and then Gisborne led him to roles at AFL level, where he spent time with Richmond and then St Kilda. However, since 2008, he's become synonymous with the Keelor Football Club, where he's coached the club to three premierships in Premier Division. In our chat with Mick, we talk about his coaching philosophy, his time in the AFL system, and the influence he's had at the Keelor Football Club. This episode is proudly brought to you by Technique Matt. To be the best batsman you can be, visit techniquematt.com.au for more info, and follow Technique Matt on Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Coaching Clubland podcast, Mick McGuan. G'day Mitch, pleasure to be here, mate. Great to have you on, Mick, and obviously it's been a tough few weeks in Victoria, and COVID-19 put a line through the 2020 season. Uh, but restrictions are easing tomorrow. So how have you kept the Kilo boys ticking over and connected during this time? Actually, we haven't really got involved in a lot of um, dialogue. It's been pretty simple. Uh, we've used what we most probably suburban clubs use, the team app, where we've just sent out a running program to basically do three times a week with an element of pairing up and just using some simple kicking drills just to keep our thigh muscles ready and loaded for when we get back and play. So we haven't asked the playing group to do too much in accordance to asking them to do anything untoward because some have got restrictions with work, others have got young kids working from home, all that sort of stuff. So you take that into account when you're making these decisions. Absolutely. And a very tumultuous day yesterday at Collingwood with Nathan Buckley and the club parting ways. What's your take? A bit of a bombshell. Is it the best thing for Bucks and Collingwood to, to part ways or do you think it was salvageable? Um, it just got to a point where I think the club had the end point in mind, and I don't know what transpired behind closed doors, but it clearly sounds as if that is the case. Nathan probably thought, well, if I'm not going to get any security from a long-term perspective to ride through this rebuild phase, he maybe sat down and said, well, one year maybe wouldn't be enough in terms of job security, and probably the club wouldn't have gone down that path anyway. It's an interesting concept, isn't it, when you sort of say that you're finishing up, do you need one more game to do so? It's a bit like a player when you retire. Um, generally, you should be done, but a lot of people love the adulation that comes with a send-off. Uh, that's the sentimental value of that type of experience. Uh, but I'm a bit old school. When you retire, you retire, and that's it. But to Bucks's credit, he's going to ride the week this week, try to prepare the players the best he can, play against an adversary that is synonymous with Queen's birthday in the Melbourne Footy Club, and... What a great opportunity it is for him and the playing group to challenge them and try to finish what has been an illustrious player coach career at the Collingwood Footy Club for just under three decades to send out probably arguably one of the most revered figures in Collingwood Footy Club's history, a winner. 
Monday promises to be a pretty emotional day with the clash against Melbourne there. And uh, hopefully the Pies, even though I'm a Carlton man, hopefully the Pies get up and salute for Bucks. But in your time at Collingwood, referring to your time as a player now, uh, you played almost your entire career under the coaching of Lee Matthews. So what were some of his strengths? And was there anything that you took away and applied to your own coaching philosophy when you started your coaching career? Because he was such a revered figure and you watch him as a young player and he was on the pedestal of probably being the best player that a lot of people thought ever played the game. He had this natural aura about him. But the thing that really probably separated him from other coaches I've heard or listened to or been a part of, I think the cornerstone to his success was honesty, logical. And I think he had the great asset of never asking someone or a group of players that he was never prepared to do himself. And I think that type of attitude rubs off onto playing groups, even though he was held on this pedestal. Over time, I felt from being an impressionable sort of 18-year-old guy coming out of the under-19s to play senior footy, I've got no doubt Lee's communication initially was pretty blunt, very honest, quite direct. But I think the more he experienced the coaching landscape, he sort of softened a little bit and he listened to other people's views with more open and impartial awareness. So as much as he wanted to be direct and assertive, which I think at AFL level, there's no time for fluff. And I don't subscribe to fluff in any stage of any footballer's journey. But I also think that compassionate side of listening and hearing, a lot of people listen but don't hear, was another great valuable learning when it comes to uh, the development and the evolution of Lee Matthews, the coach. One must remember when he did come out of his playing days, he was probably thrust into the coaching position before he knew it. He came to Collingwood under the leadership of Bob Rose, but the executive made a decision on Bobby Rose. And we know his name was clearly synonymous with the football club and the iconic status he was held in. Uh, but then Lee got into overdrive pretty quickly and he made some strong initial messages to the playing group when he galvanised them in the one room and spoke openly and honestly about the direction he wanted to take the club in. And I reckon it was no coincidence on the back of saying those words, but then acting upon them, which was impressionable, which was a huge part of my coaching philosophy now that if you're going to say something, you back it up. And by that, I mean, he wasn't afraid to mention some pretty strong names at the footy club in that stage in Mark Williams, Jeff Raines, Mike Richardson. And he basically spoke about an attitudinal shift. If it doesn't happen the likelihood of being at the Collingwood Football Club the next year won't happen. And history will tell you where those three guys ended up uh, finishing their footy careers. There's some modern greats in the last 15 or so years that have transitioned straight from playing to coaching. Michael Voss, James Hurd, Nathan Buckley. Lee did that in the mid-80s there and ultimately delivered a premiership in 1990 after you know five or six years in the role. Why is it, do you think, that the likes of Buckley, Voss and Hurd might have struggled with that transition initially being thrust into the senior coaching role? Some people, it's a duck to water, and some people might think they're ready, um, but to be thrust in the chair before they are, you probably create some insecurities about who you think you really are and what you're good at, and then you second-guess yourself, which you can't afford to do in any coaching landscape, I don't believe. I think those three names you mentioned were all synonymous with great football playing careers, and sometimes you probably think you can transfer those skills into the coaching landscape, but it's a little bit different when you're organised yourself and you only have to sell yourself to either stimulate or motivate uh, to play with a God-given talent 
that you're being granted, but also the work ethic that's required to match that talent. But it's a little bit different in the landscape of coaching in the view that you've got to create an environment that is conducive for great learnings, understand the lessons out of every time you play or train, how do you get better and find solutions. And I think the other important factor is that you can never underestimate the importance of the sum of the parts. And in every footy club I've been involved in, there's been a separation of talent, but that doesn't mean that the lesser talented people shouldn't be given the same respect as the more talented ones. And if you can get the equal messaging through to those individuals on a consistent basis through you know, a respectful forum, an honest forum, with a team-first approach and a selfless approach, it's amazing how quickly success can come. And talking about your own transition, so after your playing career ended, you, uh, you got involved with both Bernie and then Gisborne in the early 2000s. So can you reflect on how you've evolved with your coaching since those initial experiences? I was a bit like probably... A lot of people, you come out of footy. I come from a football family where my dad was always a senior coach at a young age and I was always his mascot. So I've always been in an environment where it's been footy leadership in a way. Um, I've always captained me junior teams, got to a, a vice-captain stage at Collingwood, love coaching and being with people. I think there's two constants in footy and that's people and money and they must coexist. And I've always felt... If I look at the people side of things first, which I can control, I've never had problems building relationships, whether it's a part of my upbringing, being a country boy, pretty easy going at times, but also when it's time to push the button, uh, the insides of myself get quite competitive. Maybe that's my personality in the view that I can hold conversations. I read cues pretty well. I can sense people if they've got issues, which could transfer to poor performance or not consistent performance. So initially I thought I was good at that. And because I was good at that, I felt that I probably shut down other people's views initially and probably didn't listen with the open awareness that I should have and understood other people's issues as much as what I should. I've never questioned my knowledge of the game and how it should be played the way I want to see it through my lens. So I think I've got a great understanding what I look for to make a team be super competitive and win games of footy because that's the business coaches enter into. But I've also felt at the time to transfer those uh, visionary aspects into the training aspects I've got a lot better at. Um, And that's basically understanding how you want to play, bring those trainings to, to the training format, but also then see if they stand up under opposition pressure. And then if it does, uh, you continue to work and evolve on that type of philosophy to make sure the players become so ingrained with the right habits so under pressure they can revert to those habits and they stand up. So I think that's been the natural evolution of myself um, and I'm always trying to evolve myself based on where I first started but also the game that it's become. But as I said earlier, the two constants that I've probably been attracted to is the reason why footy is a huge part of me is the, the money side of it, which I, as a coach, don't control. That's why administrators administer and coaches coach and players play. So in terms of a simple philosophy, you don't want to have a crossover effect where I might be appointed as a coach, but then I put my nose into the running and the business of a footy club. And I think as soon as you take off your your eye off the ball, as much as money is important to create the operation and make it viable and remain viable, I think you've got to concentrate on your skill set. So the people that are involved and come and go in footy, they're going to be constants the money that you needed to buy your footies or pay for your rental or your lighting or to recruit players, that needs to keep coming in. 
But the beauty of that situation is that those two constants must coexist. Without them, one can't live without the other. And Mick, moving on to your time in the AFL system, you were fleetingly involved with Richmond in 2005 and St Kilda in 2006 under Grant Thomas. And I'm sure that offers come your way quite regularly to be involved in the system or development coach level in the AFL. Has it been a conscious decision from you to remain at local level or has the right opportunity not quite hit you up? Uh, the 06 experience was left field. I remember it vividly. I was up the bush at a Maribara trot meeting. I went and see a mate of mine who was a little bit sick at the time and he ended up going to the Maribara trots. And Matty Randell was the one that called me on behalf of Grant Thomas and I thought it was a few mates just cracking a joke and I hung up on the phone call and then the phone call happened more or less straight away thereafter and Matty was fair to him. He said, he just want to have a chat. We want to get you connected. Wherever you've gone, you've won. You've got a winning mentality. Uh, you must be doing a lot right. Just come down to St Kilda tomorrow if you can. And I did. Then about three days later, I got a phone call to say, do you want to start the 1st of February? Um, that's how quick a transition. It was informal. Um, I didn't think much of it. Um, I didn't have any aspirations to move into that system. And I really enjoyed it because I had the opportunity to really um, fast track development um, in terms of building relationships, which isn't easy to do because they've started training in October, early November, and I don't get there till more or less the end of January. And then you've got to build relationships by being put into the thrust of being a midfield coach with players that I never met. Only person I probably knew was Robert Harvey because we played a lot on each other. And I had great respect for him. And then to work with him, coach to player, was a little bit strange. Uh, but also to see the next generation of midfielders in you know, Luke Ball, Brennan Goddard, Nick Del Santo, was really satisfying to work with that type of calibre of player, but also challenge them about what you see things in their game, how they can get better. And I had really good relationships with a lot of those guys because of that experience. And we fought tooth and nail. We had a few challenges through the year and I really loved it. But obviously I was on the back foot because I hadn't been a part of their training program over the summer. But I remember vividly sort of saying after a game in Western Australia against the West Coast Eagles in practice match, I just felt with your eye, sometimes you've got to cast dispersion and back it up. I didn't think we'll fit. And they probably went down a more a conservative pre-season because of the history of their injuries leading into that 2006 season. And Craig Starcevic, who was a premiership teammate of mine at Collingwood, was heading up sports science. And he come from the Brisbane successful era under Lee, but also with Foss and Ackermanis, Lappin, all these Simon Black, all these type of boys that, that probably build up a residual fitness based over time so they could tailor a program to suit their needs and requirements. And he probably brought that to a young energetic group that relished hard work and they probably hadn't had the conditioning of you know, seven, eight, nine years of pre-seasons to have that base fitness behind them so you could actually tailor a program to suit those requirements. And it proved probably correct because the first nine or ten rounds that year, the Saints struggled a bit, struggled a bit win-loss and probably a defining moment mid-season, there was a shift in attitude to go to a mid-season camp in actual fact, we went there for three or four days and completely flogged the players. And it was on their request. They didn't think they were fit enough to get through games. So the creative minds got together and created a program or a camp where the individuals were going to be mentally and physically challenged. And that certainly did take place. And the back half of the year, they come with a rush, got to finals, unfortunately, against Melbourne that year. It was one of those experiences where we lost four or five players in game and they were key personnel. Rob Harvey done a hammy. He was getting tagged by Cam Bruce, more or less played out of the forward pocket. Xavier Clark, Raf Clark, Justin Kaczynski and Fraser Gehrig were really prominent personnel 
within that team, but they were all injured by four half time. It was just unfortunate way the numbers probably told against us in the end, but they were brave and really we were proud as a coaching staff to see what they had to endure in a game that mattered, but just fell at the last hurdle because of reasons, not excuses. And on the back of that, we started our review more or less immediately the next morning. And two days later, I remember we're sitting talking about list management decisions and talking about potential programs going forward. And it was Georgie Fidge, who was the media manager at the time, sort of said that Grant needs to come back to the footy club because we'd left for lunch after being there at seven o'clock in the morning. And as we know, history will tell us that that's when Grant Thomas was sacked as coach, which I felt was clearly unfair at the time. I didn't know about the personal issues between Rod Butters and also Grant Thomas. And all of a sudden, um, a decision was made on his career, which probably put a sour taste in my mouth in the view that, is this what footy's become? Mm, yeah. Um, it was callous. Maybe it was coming um, from Butters' perspective and us coaches were blindsided. I know Tomo was. But I really respect Grant Thomas in the view that he had the balls to actually put my name in a position of coaching at AFL level because I had aspirations at the time to do so. And he followed through what he said he would. He'd give me an opportunity, which he did. And I never knew Grant Thomas, but I certainly respect the opportunity presented for me. And then it come to a point where you either get shoot or get shot. And I had a decision to make because I had a RSN, or back then 927, ring me about a position and doing breakfast radio because Anthony Mithen wasn't going to do it with Michael Christian. And at that time, St Kilda were looking for a new coach. And I know how the system works. Uh, if a new coach gets appointed, sometimes the whole broom goes through yep. the joint and everyone gets cleaned out. And I wasn't prepared to risk that in the view that I had the decision to make. I waited for as long as I could. When I had a decision to make and there was a timeline involved, I had to ring the radio station to say, well, there's no decision at St Kilda yet. That's me first, love. But in the view that I have to make a decision, I'd prefer to shoot rather than get shot. So I did make the decision so I could um, have job security and bring income in to support the family. Hence the reason as to why I went to the radio path, because at that time, Ross Lyon, who became the next coach of St Kilda, hadn't been appointed because I was still talking to Guy McKenna, Chris Bond, uh, John Longmire's name was bandied around and also Ross, and Ross was the one that got the job. But by the time it was made, I'd already had to have made a decision because if I said no to the, the radio job, if Ross comes in and wants to bring his own people in, I have lose the St Kilda job as well and left without a, any job at all. So I went down the path of making sure that I get a job for myself. And you've got to take the best guaranteed opportunity that's in front of you. So that, that totally makes sense. And that leads you to your time at Keelor, where from 2008 onwards, you've been the, the senior coach there and have won three flags in Premier Division and recently had a 23-game winning streak, uh, knocked on the head by Avondale Heights, I think it was. But what are some of the cultural elements and factors that have made Keelor such a successful club in the ADFL? And what were some of the first things that you needed to address when you arrived at the club? Go back to 2008. They played in a preliminary final in 2007. And by the time of the appointment, they'd made decisions or 11 players had made decisions because of the lateness of the appointment. They'd made a decision to leave the footy club. And there's two guys, Lee Fraser and Micah James, who were pretty strong personalities within the footy club. They started signing before I actually put a handshake out in front of Paul Barbuto and Dennis Brown and said that I'd happy to come and help out the best I can. So straight away, I knew they were proactive with what they wanted to do. I had no idea about Keelor standing in the EDFL, what type of club it was. But when I first turned up at training and the first training session, I can remember vividly, I think we had something close to 90 people that turned to training. Um, there was excitement. The playing group were receptive to listening. No one gave us a chance. 
And I said to the players then and there, I said, the external talk's fine. Listen to it, absorb it. We don't have to listen to it to agree with it. And if you know me, uh, wherever I go, uh, I won't tolerate mediocrity. And we just got to work. We finished second on the ladder. Greenvale hadn't lost a game. They beat us by 50-odd points in the second semi. They advanced. We beat Strathmore in the preliminary. And I remember walking off that second semi-final stage. I turned to Lee Fraser, our captain. I said, we'll win the premiership. And he said, what? I said, we'll win the premiership. (laughs) I said, we get through Strathmore, which we will. I said, there's no question we'll win the premiership. And it was an 86-point turnaround in the space of 14 days. Incredible. um, It was one of the great great starts to... uh, what has been a pretty significant marriage in a way because uh, the Keelor Footy Club has been great to me. The young bloke's playing there now. Uh, he loves the footy environment. He's met a lot of friends. He loves the environment. And it's just a really good family club in the view that all people through your family connection can come down and enjoy a day. Your missus can come and watch the footy and she just sits back and watches the game and enjoys it. It's just a really good family club to be a part of and everyone just feels like they're a part of the furniture. You see kids at your feet. You have 170 meals on a Thursday night. Um, you see a sea of faces Monday through to Friday being connected through from senior footy right to under eights, now Auskick as well. And we've got 800 people that represent our colours nearly throughout every weekend of boys, girls, men, women and Auskick. And then you take it to the extension of what is success about. Of course, we're all driven to win premierships, uh, but that isn't the be all and end all of what a successful organisation is about. It's about giving these young boys or girls a chance to get to the AFL landscape or the highest level they can when they can, or even the, from the girls' perspective, to live the dream of being an AFLW player or an AFL, a VFL uh, player as well in the female landscape. And we work extremely hard as volunteers to get that to happen. Uh, it takes a lot of man hours, as you know. Uh, but Mitch, I think it's so important to understand that there's a lot of people that probably um, work hard in silence and just they let their actions make all the noise. And that's what good volunteers do. They do it for other people. It's a fantastic family club. I was fortunate enough to play junior cricket at Keelor and obviously under the sports club umbrella there. And people like uh, Paul and Guy Barbudo and there's a cast of thousands there that have been entrenched for decades now, really, and uh, make the place a wonderful place to, to grow up as well as much as anything. Now, Mick, you're a, you're a real footy head. You've got an innate and deep understanding of the game. So I'm interested in how you adapt your messaging for local footballers. So you work with the likes of Andrew Brown and Patrick Vesprimi and, and players like Kane Barberto. Your captain have played high-level high footy for a long time, but you've also got youngsters coming through or blokes that are working nine to five and got kids and other pressures. So how do you adapt your messaging accordingly to the, the different players you've got in your group? I think you just have a strength of reading cues and reading people and reading and understanding their landscape and what's important to them. So you tailor a program to suit the whole group as much as you think it's a team collective to get the job done and mostly on match day between two and five, that is the case. But you also have to understand the players within your organisation, what they do nine to five. You know, I've told certain blokes who I know dig holes for a living in 40 degree heat and when pre-season starts, you know they've been up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to get their work done. They're still working till 4 o'clock. And the last thing a lot of them want to do is come down and do 1Ks, 600-metre time trials, and then, then spend an hour and a half on skill acquisition. So to understand that, you just read the cues and you say to player A, B or C and say, mate, have a night off. Oh, no, I want to train. No, have a night off. I said, you've been working around the clock. It's been 35-degree heat. You're naturally fit and you're up body strong anyway. Um, if you feel like refresh, just go for a swim. Little things like that. The messaging generally is congruent. I'm big on that with our assistant coaches. I don't have to be the sole voice. I'm pretty 
trustworthy when it comes to allowing our assistant coaches to live message and that empowers them to be better, but also understand what you're trying to sell to the playing group. But I think it also reinvigorates the playing group when you hear a different voice. The messaging needs to be simple. It has to be concise. It's got to be clear. And even the smart ones at times derive benefit from that level of communication. As much as they might have footy IQ that supersedes other individuals, I think sometimes you've got to understand you're coaching for the less talented and the most simplistic type of guy because there are simple footballers out there. They know how to get it and they know what to do with it. So they don't have to really be involved in the complications of the discussion as to why and the how. We're big on fundamental training. Um, at this level of footy, ball in hand is enjoyable, but also it increases an appetite to be a training because they can see personal growth in their own game. It frustrates the hell out of me when you go and watch junior coaches. You have one footy, 24 boys, and they're resting at the back of the drill. You know, their work-rest ratio might be five seconds in and they're a minute and a half out. They wonder why they get stale or they're talking at the end of the group. Micro groups really, tra- really is important in the modern game. Um, identify what's needed, what importance is placed on that facet of the game, train it. Is it a part of your coaching philosophy and your style and your game plan? If it is, make sure you rehearse it and emphasize it and train it consistently. The great Vince Lombardi got it right. It's about the correct, it's um it's about the correct performance and how you do it. It's repetition of that correct performance. And we have got that mantra in place. And that's the reason why you can tailor it for smart players who've played at a high level, but also those got aspirations to get there. And I think that one-size-fits-all approach where every player must train every session at full intensity, I think that's pretty much dead and buried. You need to adapt your program accordingly for people who have different circumstances. And I think that's been one big growth area in Australian coaching last probably five or ten years in particular that we're probably a bit more flexible than what we once were. The thing about it too, Mitch, is that we've got access to GPS data now, which in 2008 we didn't. And it's amazing when you look back at a game of footy and you say, gee, we've worked hard today. And then you get supported by that through GPS data. And you think that most players have run anywhere between 10 and 12 kilometres. It opens your eyes when you see some players running 16 and a half kilometres and their top end speeds at 3.2k. So then that gives you a great ammunition to sit back and observe what's required for the next week or the next month. And you can tailor your training program around that. Because one thing we can't control is the weather. The other thing that we can't control at the Keelor Footy Club is council involvement. They might just give us a call at three o'clock or via email and say there's no training on the ground tonight. So straight away, we might have to go into a contingency and say, do we train at all? Do we quickly get a message out, just do a swim session? Or on the back of GPS data, on Saturday, we played on a heavy ground. We ran anywhere between 13 and 16 and a half kilometres on average as a playing group. Have a night off, boys refresh, go and have a meal with your missus, take the kids out for tea, go and watch a movie or sit at home and just refuel and re-energise. And on the back of that, they come to training on Thursday night, bouncing, ready to go. And they're fresh come Saturday and they wonder why sometimes you jump out of the blocks and kick eight goals to two because the other clubs are probably going through the mud. They're training. They think a two-hour punishment session is good because they got flogged the 10 by 10 goals the week before. It doesn't mean that's necessarily going to equate to the next week's performance and an expected standard that the coach demands because of the previous week was disappointing. No, I'm, I'm probably guilty of that from a career perspective when it's a wet night and uh, I'd often throw out the line, you know, no one else is getting the work in. We're working harder than every other club right now, but you've got to think about what the actual value is from, from those kind of sessions. Mick, can you talk us through a typical week for you? So from post-game, uh, the debrief, your discussion as a coaching panel, and then in the lead up to the game seven days later, what are some of the things that you need to work through to prepare your group for training, selection, opposition analysis and strategy? In a snapshot, win, lose or draw, we always 
or mostly, have a chat to the players and talk about the, the good or the bad while it's fresh and it's unemotional. Um, if I think that I've been really disappointed and I mightn't be able to keep myself in check, I won't talk to the players at all. So I'll distance myself from that emotional disappointment and not say something that I probably would regret. And I learned that through Lee Matthews and David Parkin. Have I always got that right? No, I haven't. But in saying that, it's always at the forefront of my mind. Um, so let's focus on when we win. It's about why we won and some individuals that contributed strongly as to the reason why the team had a good day. Then the match committee, as the players are having their shower or having a celebration drink, we go into the coach's room and just talk quickly about what we did well, lines, what we need to improve on. And that might formulate the model of our training program the following week based on fundamental training or personal development or line development training. Um, on the back of that, we'll get the vision. I generally get it sometimes Saturday night, mostly Sunday mornings. Uh, by Sunday night, I've already watched it and I've already clipped and edited what I think is important. And then I make a decision whether or not based on who we've got coming up, do we need an extra hour at the club or half an hour at the club? Do I actually show individual edits? Do I show team edits or show both? Does that waste time that we don't necessarily have to be at the footy club knowing full well they're part-timers? Sometimes it has a great impact when you only do it once every month or once every six weeks. It becomes a quite bit mundane. Players become sheepish. Oh, he's going to assault me because I was weak in that contest. And this is not personal. Footy's an impersonal game. These are the actions we critique. And some people get a little bit uncomfortable in relation to that. And if that was a constant, in some cases, you might lose that player or a group of players. Uh, but that's for them to decide. Come Thursday, Tuesday night before training, we generally speak as a coach about the template we want to look at training. The brand night, Tuesday night, is how we want to play for the following week because we've discussed already what the opposition do well, what we can do to expose them. Um, if most players are out in the deck and we've got a clean bill of health, um, we'll do a lot of match sim stuff. Get through that, hopefully unscathed. Have a quiet discussion after training, how'd that go? Have a general discussion about looking at the format of the team. These 25, 6, 7 players might be in the frame for selection. We've got some uncertainty about VFL or TAC Cup-level players. They have to be factored in the conversation. We also have to listen to the medical staff to say, well, player A, B or C mightn't come up. That has to be factored in your decision-making process. Then come Thursday night on the back of follow-up phone calls on the Wednesday or Wednesday night or Thursday to check in to players where they're at, how they're feeling. We get a clearer picture of what the top squad of 25 or 6 or 7 might look like for training. We separate between seniors and reserves and our thirds and our under-18s different time slots for those areas, uh, for those um, teams. By the time we start training, we've got a good idea of who might be available. This is what the team looks like. We might have a 40-minute session maximum, just in terms of high intensity, some fundamentals, some specifics, a little bit of PD at the closure of that training session if players want to, stoppage practice, goal-kicking practice, defensive 50 exiting, all that sort of stuff. We leave that to the playing group. And we get inside then and wait for some phone calls from VFL clubs wait for some phone calls from TAC clubs, factor in yes or no that that player or that player is not going to play or going to play, and then try to formulate the plans about this is the final 22. If there's any lingering injury issues, we're happy to name a squad of 25 or 26 and say because of A, B and C, we want to give them an extra 24 hours because we think they can make a difference if they do play. We'll give them the gratitude that they deserve and the respect they deserve to give them a chance to play. And then we'll make some phone calls on a Friday night and tidy up and formulate uh, the senior squad, that comes first. And then obviously that has a compounding effect through to the reserves or to the thirds and then even sometimes down to the under-18s. And that's why the messaging's got to be pretty clear. It's got to be concise. The decision you make might impact on some others, some other coaches' group. And that's the reason why we try to get it right and have that continuity of practice when it comes to match selection. 
and that selection process is quite lengthy because if your team's not even finalised sort of by Friday afternoon, evening, that's a big process to undertake. I think about it in a cricket context where I've got four teams to pick by 11 blokes and that's I like to get that done and dusted by Thursday night, but I don't have, you know, VFL clubs and TAC Cup with players unsure about their availability. That can be quite taxing, I'm sure, from a selection perspective when you've got 17 rounds and finals and those things and those key decisions you've got to keep making week in, week out. That's a big process to undertake. It is. There's no doubt about that. And so, in some cases, Mitch, we might be waiting on a phone call till Saturday morning because of the AFL influence, the carryover aspect. That player comes back to VFL. Does he travel back? Does he not get sick on flight? If he does get sick on flight, the player you think you're going to have, they take. So all of a sudden, by 9.30, players are getting out of bed, ready to drive to the ground to Greenvale mm. and play Greenvale and play reserves footy. He might be a late call-up to yeah. senior footy. So it can work both ways in a way, but you've got to be really flexible. You've got to be prepared to adapt. But the most important part of the the jigsaw is that you've had these what-if scenarios um, in place. And then sometimes it's a bit like putting a jigsaw together. Um, If you've planned for it, it doesn't become a huge problem. If you think that player A is unavailable because of a reason that we can't control, player B can come in and fit that um, play that role. And we make those decisions pretty swiftly. And one thing I really like about your involvement with Keeler is that you've had junior coaching roles combined with your senior coaching duties as well. I reckon that's pretty rare. Why have you opted to do this and have both involvements been equally satisfying? Uh, yeah, they have. I love coaching men. Um, there's no question about that because I um, love to challenge. I love to see them be the best version of themselves when it comes to uh, what's required in a team type of environment. And I love coaching the team to bring that all together because everyone's got different wants, desires, talents, skill sets, attitude, the old saying. When it comes to attitude, I think we've all got one. But the great question I ask the players, is yours contagious? Is it worth catching? And if you think it's not, well, don't say you've got the right attitude and try to come and play at our footy club because if you think it's about you, you're in for a rude shock. And the other aspect of coaching junior kids, because I think, The fundamentals of the game are the cornerstone to any young kid who's got aspirations to play at a high level. I'm not sure there's good practice in place across the board from a junior coaching perspective. And I understand the reason why. We've got great people that have got good hearts and they're generally the dads. They might have some spare time to put up their hand and because they've got a son or a girl playing footy, they might just say, well, on the back of no one else doing it, I'll put my hand up. But they haven't necessarily got the skill set to teach, to develop, uh, to show technical flaws and then correct those technical flaws in kicking technique. We're dealing with an oval ball. It's not a soccer ball. We can just bounce straight back up at you or a basketball is an oval ball we play with and to master the skill of kicking is not an easy thing to do. So that's the other part of the challenge I love is trying to correct poor techniques with kids that have got great aspiration, great desire, great level of wanting to get better but without the right coaching tools in place, the kids will never get better. So if we can correct one individual per year within the group you coach, I see that as satisfaction. I see that as movement in the right direction. But I think the other part of it, they've got to get an understanding of what winning and losing is all about. And I think too many clubs place such a huge emphasis on winning. It can become ugly. I think a huge part of shaping a young boy's character is to treat those two imposters the winning and the losing, the same. And if you understand humility, which we all do as older people, uh, we all understand to be gracious when things don't go your way. That's what good sportsmanship is. It can fuel you inside for the next time you play, 
that outwardly you don't have to show it in a negative way that impacts on you, the individual, your family, or the club you're representing. And I think that education process is, has to be taught as a coach to a young group of players. Because as you know, Mitch, at 13 and 14 years of age, the testosterone starts to kick in by 15 or 16. Uh, they might have other distractions on their mind. They might be chasing a girlfriend around the street or at the school, and they become probably better than what they think they are. But if we can keep them grounded and understand what the game really is about, it's about improvement, it's about winning and losing and how you actually handle those two imposters, whether they're the same or not, but what drives you to be better is another part of the reason why we love connecting with young boys. Uh, some great messages. And I think uh, in many respects, younger people are blanket canvases where you can really shape them both in terms of football ability and also their personal attributes. Uh, Mick, in closing, what's your current take on the state of the game at AFL level? So in recent years, we've had 666 introduced and standing the mark this year to uh, reduce congestion. How have these rules improved the game or have they made a you know negligible difference? And has there been any difference that's fed back to local level? Uh, the 666, I think, has been good because I, I just love the aspect if you win a clearance, you're going into a 1v1. And I reckon aesthetically, I thought we've probably lost our unique game that I probably grew up watching and but also playing in. Uh, more so now because it's all about probably spatial defence. There is an element of soccer formations to our zone defences. That's challenging in terms of offensive ball movement, of course. We know the game of footy evolves. And on the back of so many boring games over a period of time, I think the AFL got it right in terms of the decision makers to introduce, and I was probably a little bit, uh, against it initially, but watching the first five or six rounds, I think the two things that they brought in place, the reduction of interchange to create fatigue, might necessarily help injury, but also the stand on the mark rule has allowed more fast ball movement, exciting brand of footy. It's probably stimmed a little bit at this stage um, of the season because coaches find a way to work around it. And that certainly has been the case, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to continue the fatigue factor to try to get more positional play in place. Uh, we know there's a limit on rotations at this current point in time, but I wouldn't be surprised at all for Laura Biders decide to reduce the interchange cap even more by another probably 20 or 25 in the not too distant future. Any take on zones or is that just a step too far? Oh, no, we don't want netball on the footy field. And that's not disregarding netball as a sport. At the end of the day, you've got three areas and in some cases you can't cross over. We, I coached our under-8s, geez, what's that, six years ago, and they introduced that and there was no scoring. I didn't agree with that either, the no scoring aspect, because kids know they're not mm. stupid. Yeah, They score the amount of goals. As I said, a huge part of shaping someone's character is understanding winning and losing. It's only putting off the inevitable. Participation's fine as a reason why they do it, but some Players get driven and get excited by the game and they want to improve, so they stay in it. Some kids don't like it because they don't like contact or they don't like the physical nature of what footy offers sometimes and they walk away from it. So sometimes I think as a, as a product, we compromise our standards to accept mediocrity. Uh, mercy rule, for example, um, find a way. Didn't affect us when we were 12, 13, 14. It made you fight. It made you be resilient. Um, I don't want handouts. I don't want to run eighth in a relay race and get a ribbon. I ran eighth, I ran last. Uh, the inner drive in me says, well, to get a medal next time or a blue ribbon or a red ribbon or a yellow ribbon, I've got some work to do. I'm not fit enough. I'm not quick enough. I don't train often enough. I don't kick on my left side enough. That's the reason why I'm playing reserves, whatever it may be. If you can consistently evolve yourself to be better, I think uh, that holds you in good stead. But it's really important to put in place a set of ideals right from the early age because um, the future's always around the corner. It's just a matter of who holds it. 
Mick, it's been sensational chatting to you. Your time as a player, premiership player with Collingwood in 1990, dual best and fairest winner of the Copeland Trophy there, all Australian. Your seven-bounce effort against the Blues in 1994 broke my young Carlton heart, mate. So uh, <laughs> your time as a player is unquestioned, and I think your impact as a coach has been just as great, if not greater. So congratulations on all you've achieved so far, and best of luck with Keeler once the season resumes. I appreciate it, Mitch, and um, thanks very much for your time and all the best. And I think uh, the more information we get out into the landscape for coaching, whatever sport it is, uh, the better the product will be for not only the short term, but most importantly, the long term, because we'll grow old, mate. We'll be 70 or 81 stage and we'll be sit back and still analysing. But if we can have a a part to play to improve and upskill based on what coaching is all about, we're happy to help out. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Mick. Good on you, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching Clubland. A shout out to the talented Aidan Arandes for putting together our podcast theme song. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Feel free to leave a rating and review. To catch the latest updates from the podcast, check us out on Facebook or on Twitter at Coaching Club Pod. Thanks again and catch you around in Clubland.